Chapter Thirty Three of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter Thirty Three. Moving onward. The world still rolls on. Let what may be happening to the individuals who occupy it. The sun rises and sets. Seed time and harvest come and go. Generations arise and pass away. Law and authority hold on their course, while hundreds of millions of human hearts have stirring within them struggles and emotions eternally new, an experience so diversified as that no two days appear alike to any one, and to no two does any one day appear the same. There is something so striking in this perpetual contrast between the external uniformity and internal variety of the procedure of existence, that it is no wonder that multitudes have formed a conception of fate, of a mighty, unchanging power, blind to the differences of spirits, and deaf to the appeals of human delight and misery, a huge and sensible force, beneath which all that is spiritual is sooner or later wounded, and is ever liable to be crushed. This conception of fate is grand, the natural and fully warranted to minds too lofty to be satisfied with the details of human life, but which have not risen to the far higher conception of a providence to whom this uniformity and variety are, but means to a higher end than they apparently involve. There is infinite blessing in having reached the nobler conception. The feeling of helplessness is relieved. The craving for sympathy from the ruling power is satisfied. There is a hold for veneration. There is room for hope, there is, above all, the stimulus and support of an end perceived or anticipated, a purpose which steeps in sanctity all human experience. Yet even where this blessing is the most fully felt and recognized, the spirit cannot be at times overwhelmed by the vast regularly of aggregate existence, thrown back upon its faith for support when it reflects how all things go on as they did before it became conscious of existence, and how all would go on as now, if it were to die today, on it rolls not only the great globe itself, but the life which stirs and hums on its surface, enveloping it like an atmosphere, on it rolls, and the vastest tumult that may take place among its inhabitants can no more make itself seen and heard above the general stir and hum of life, then Chimborazo, or the loftiest Himalaya, can lift its peak into space above the atmosphere. On, on its rolls, and the strong arm of the united race could not turn from its course one planetary mode of the myriads that swim in space. No shriek of passion, nor shrill song of joy, sent up from a group of nations on a continent, could attain the ear of the eternal silence. As she sits throned among the stars, death is less dreary than life in this view, a view which at times perhaps presents itself to every mind, but which speedily vanishes before the faith of those who, with the heart, believe that they are not the accidents of fate but the children of a father. In the house of every wise parent may then be seen an epitome of life, a sight whose consolation is needed at times, perhaps by all, which of the little children of a virtuous household can achieve of his entering into his parents' pursuits, or interfering with them? How sacred are the study and the office! 
the apparatus of a knowledge and a power which he can only venerate. Which of these little ones dreams of disturbing the course of his parents' thought or achievement? Which of them conceives of the daily routine of the household? It's going forth and coming in, it's rising and its rest, having been different before his birth, or that it would be altered by his absence? It is even a matter of surprise to him, when it now and then occurs to him that there is anything set apart for him, that he has clothes and couch, and that his mother thinks and cares for him. If he lags behind in a walk, or finds himself alone among the trees, he does not dream of being missed, but home rises up before him, as he has always seen it, his father thoughtful, his mother occupied, and the rest gay, with the one difference of his not being there. Thus he believes, and has no other trust than in his shrieks of terror. For being ever remembered more, yet all the while, from day to day, from year to year, without one moment's intermission, is the providence of his parent around him, brooding over the workings of his infant spirit, chastening its passions, nourishing its affections, now troubling it with salutary pain, now animating it with even more wholesome delight. All the while is the order of household affairs regulated for the comfort and profit of these lowly little ones, though they regard it reverently because they cannot comprehend it. They may not know of all this, how their guardian bends over their pillow nightly, and lets no word of their careless talk drop unheeded, hails every brightening gleam of reason, and records every sob of infant grief, and every chirp of childish glee. They may not know this, because they could not understand it all right, and each little heart would be inflated with pride, each little mind would lose the grace and purity of its unconsciousness. But the guardianship is not less real, constant, and tender, for its being unrecognized by its objects, as the spirit expands, and perceives that it is one of an innumerable family, it would be in danger of sinking into the despair of loneliness, if it were not capable of belief and mercy carried infinite degrees beyond the tenderness of human hearts. While the very circumstance of multitude obviates the danger of undue elation, but though it is good to be lowly, it behooves every one to be sensible of the guardianship of which so many evidences are around all who breathe, while the world and life roll on and on. The feeble reason of the child of providence may be at times overpowered with the vastness of the system amidst which he lives, but his faith will smile upon his fear, rebuke him for averting his eyes, and inspire him with the thought, Nothing can crush me, for I am made for eternity." I will do, suffer, and enjoy, as my father wills, and let the world and life roll on. Such is the faith which supports, which alone can support. The many who, having been whirled in the eddying stream of social affairs, are withdrawn, by one cause or another, to abide, in some still little creek, the passage of the mighty tide, the broken-down statesman, who knows himself to be spoken of as politically dead, and sees his successors at work, building on his foundations, without more than a passing thought, on who had labored before them, has need of his faith, the aged who find affairs proceeding at the will of the young and hardy, whatever the gray-haired may think and say, have need of his faith, so have the sick, when they find none but themselves, disposed to look on life in the light which comes from beyond the grave, so have the persecuted when, with or without cause, they see themselves pointed at in the streets, and the despised, who find themselves neglected, 
whichever way they turn. So have the prosperous during those moments which must occur to all, when sympathy fails and means to much desired ends at wanting, or when society makes the spirit roam abroad in search of something better than it has found. This universal, eternal, filial relation is the only universal and eternal refuge. It is the solace of royalty, weeping in the inner chambers of its palaces, and of poverty, drooping beside its cold hearth. It is the glad tidings preached to the poor, and in which all must be poor in spirit to have part. If they be poor in spirit, it matters little what is their external state, or whether the world which rolls on beside or over them be the world of a solar system, or of a conquering empire, or of a small-souled village. It now and then seems strange to hope, his wife and sister now and then, and for a passing moment, that while their hearts were full of motion, and their hands occupied with vicissitudes of their lot, the little world around them, which was wont to busy itself so strenuously with their affairs, should work its yearly round as if it heeded them not. As often as they detected themselves in his thought, they smelled at it, for might not each neighbor say the same of them as constituting a part of the surrounding world? There a cottage, where some engrossing interest did not defy sympathy, where there was not some secret joy, some heart sore hidden from every eye, some important change, while all looked as familiar as the thatch and paling, and the faces which appeared within them? Yet there seemed something wonderful in the regularity with which affairs proceeded. The hawthorn hedges blossomed, and the corn was green in the furrows. The saw of the carpenter was heard from day to day, and the anvil of the blacksmith rang. The letter-carrier blew his horn as the times came round. The children shouted in the road, and their parents bought and sold, planted and delved, ate and slept, as they had ever done, as if existence were as mechanical as the clock which told the hours without fail from the grey steeple. Amidst all this, how great were the changes in the corner-house! In the early spring, the hearts of the dwellers in that house had been, though far less dreary than in the winter, still heavy at times with care. Hester thought that she would never again look upon the palm boughs of the willow, swelling with sap and full of the hum of the early bees, or upon the bright green sprouts of the gooseberry in the cottage gardens, or upon the earliest primrose of the season on its moist bank, without a vivid recollection of the anxieties of this first spring season of her married life. The balmy month of May, rich in its tulips and lilacs and welder roses, was sacred to Margaret from the sorrow which it brought in the death of Mrs. Enderby. She wandered under the hedgerows with Philip, during the short remainder of a stay, and alone when he was gone, and grew into better acquaintance with her own state of heart and mind, and into higher hope for the future, of all whom she loved most, when the mowers were in the field, and the chirping figlings had become birds of the air, and the days were at the longest, her country rambles became more precious, for they must henceforth be restricted. They must be scarcer and shorter, in the place of the leisure and solitude for books in her own room, and for meditation in the field, leisure and solitude which had been to this day more dreamed of than enjoyed. She must now betake herself to more active duty. The maid Susan was discharged at midsummer, and not only Susan, after ample consultation with Morris, it was decided that Charles must go too, his place being in part supplied by a boy of yet humbler pretensions, 
out of the house who should carry out the medicines from the surgery and do the errands of the family. Morris spoke cheerfully enough of these changes, smiled as if amused at the idea of her leaving her young ladies, and did not doubt but that, if Miss Margaret would lend her a helping hand sometimes, she would be able to preserve the credit of the family. There was something more to be done than to lend this helping hand in the lighter domestic offices. Their midsummer remittance had been eagerly looked for by the sisters, not only because it was exceedingly wanted for the current expenses of the household, but because it was high time that preparations were begun for the great event of the autumn, the birth of Hester's little one. During the summer, Margaret was up early, and was busy, as Morris herself, about the house till breakfast. And for some time after Hope had gone forth on his daily round, now so small that he soon returned to his books and his pen in the study, the morning hours passed pleasantly away, while Hester and Margaret sat at work by the window which looked into their garden, now by Sidney's care, trimmed up into a state of promise once more. Hester was so much happier, so reasonable, so brave, amidst her sinking fortunes, that Margaret could scarcely have been gayer than in plying her needle by her side. Their cares lay chiefly out of doors now. The villagers behaved rudely to Edward, and cherished Mr. Walcott. Mrs. Rowland took every opportunity of insulting Margaret, and throwing discredit on her engagement, and the Greys caused their cousins much uneasiness by the spirit in which they conducted their share of the great controversy of the place. These troubles awaited the corner-house family abroad, but their peace was perpetually on the increase at home. Morris and they were so completely in one interest, Edward was so easily pleased, and they were so free from jealous dependence that they could carry their economy to any extent that suited their conscience and convenience. One superfluity after another vanished from the table. Every day something which had always been a want was discovered to be a fancy, and with every new act of frugality, each fresh exertion of industry, their spirits rose with a sense of achievement and the complacency proper to cheerful sacrifice. In the evenings of their busy days, the sisters went out with Edward into their garden, or into the meadows, or spent an hour in the great pretty shrubbery. Maria often saw them thus, and thought how happy are they who can ramble abroad, and find their cares dispersed by the breeze, or dissolved in the sunshine of the fields. The little Rollins sometimes met them in the lanes, and the younger ones would thrust upon them the wild flowers which Mr. Walcott had helped them to gather, while Mrs. Rowland and Matilda would draw down their black crape veils and walk on with scarcely a passing salutation. Every such meeting with the lady, every civil bow from Mr. Walcott, every tale which Mrs. Gray and Sophia had to tell against the new surgeon, seemed to do Hester good and make her happier. These things were appeals to her magnanimity, and she could bear for Edward's sake many a trial which she could not otherwise have endured. All this told upon the intercourse at home, and Morse's heart was often cheered, as she pursued her labors in kitchen or chamber, with the sound of such merry laughter as had seldom been heard in the family during the anxious winter that had gone by. It seemed as if nothing depressed her young ladies now. There was frequent intelligence of the going over of another patient to Mr. Walcott. The summer was not a favorable one, and everybody else was complaining of unseasonable weather, of the certainty of storms in the autumn of blight, 
and the prospect of scarcity yet, though Mr. Gray shook his head, and the parish clerk could never be seen, but with a doleful prophecy in his mouth. Morris's young master and mistresses were gay as she could desire. She was piously thankful for Margaret's engagement, for she concluded that it was by means of this that other hearts were working round into their true relation and into a peace which the world, with all its wealth and favors, can neither make nor mar. In one of Margaret's hedgerow's rambles with Philip, a few days after his mother's funeral, she had been strongly urged to leave Deerbrook and its troubles behind her, to marry at once and be free from the trials from which he could not protect her if he remained in the same place with Mrs. Rowland. But Margaret steadily refused. "'You will be wretched,' said Philip. "'You will be wretched. I know you will, the moment I am gone.' "'I never was less likely to be wretched. Mrs. Rowland cannot make me so, and other people will not. I have every expectation of a happy summer, which I mentioned for your sake, for I do not like to indulge in that sort of anticipation without some such good reason as comforting you.' You cannot be happy here. Priscilla will never let you have an easy day. While she fancies she can separate us, when I think of pertinacity with which she disowns you, the scorn with which she speaks about you, even in my presence, I see that nothing will do but your being mine at once. That would not mend the matter. Our haste and imprudence would go to countenance the scandal she spreads. Why cannot we rather live it down? because your spirit will be broken in the meantime. Margaret, I must be your guardian. This is my first duty, and an absolute necessity. If you will not go with me, I will not leave this place, and if my plan of life is broken up, you will be answerable for it. It was your plan, and you may demolish it, if you choose. I have a plan of life, too, said Margaret. It is to do the duty that lies nearest at hand, and the duty that lies nearest at hand is to keep you up to yours. After this, there is one which lies almost as close. I cannot leave Hester and Edward till this crisis in their fortunes is past. I am bound to them for the present. What are their claims to mine? Nothing, if they were fortunate, as I trust they yet may be. Nothing, if you had followed your plan of life up to this point when we may carry it out together. We are wrong, Philip. In even thinking of what you say, you must go and study law, and you must go without me. Indeed, I could not be happy to join you yet. Your good name would suffer from what Mrs. Rowland might then say. Your future prospects would suffer from the interruption of your preparation for your profession. I should feel that I had injured you, and deserted my own duty. Indeed, Philip, I could not be happy. And how happy do you imagine we shall be apart? Margaret gave him a look which said what words could not, what it was to be assured of his love. What it seemed to ask, could all the evil tongues in the world do to poison this joy? Besides, said she, I have the idea that I could not be spared, and there is great pleasure in that vanity. Edward and Hester cannot do without me at present. You may say so at any future time. No, when the right time comes, they will not want me. Oh, Philip, you are grieved for them, and you long to see them prosperous. Do not tempt me to desert them now. They want my help. They want the little money I have. They want my hands and head. Let this be your share of the penalty Mrs. Rowland imposes upon us all. 
to spare me to them while their adversity lasts. I would not be selfish, Margaret. I would not trespass upon your wishes and your duty. But the truth is, I sometimes fear that I may have some heavier penalty, even than this, to pay for Priscilla's temper. Ah, you wonder what can be heavier. Remember, she has put misunderstanding between us before. But she never can again. Ours was then merely a tacit understanding. Now, supposing me ever to hear what she may hint or say, do you imagine I could give the slightest heed to it? I would not believe her news of a person. I had never seen, and do you think she can make the slightest impression on me with regard to you? It seems unreasonable at this moment, but yet I have a superstitious dread of the power of spirits of evil. Superstitious, indeed. I defy them all. Now that we have once understood each other, if we were able to do far more than she can, if she could load the winds with accusations against you, if she could haunt my dreams and raise you up in vicious mocking at me, I believe she could not move me now, before I blamed myself. I thought I was lost in vanity and error. Now that I have once had certainty, we are safe. You are right. I trust. I believe it. But there is a long, hard battle to be fought yet. It fills me with shame to think how he treats you in every relation you have. She is cruel to Maria Young. She hopes to reach you through her. Ah, uh, you will hear nothing of it from Maria, I dare say, but she spoke infamously to her this morning, before Mrs. Levitt. Mrs. Levitt happened to be sitting with Maria when Priscilla and one or two of the children went in. Mrs. Levitt spoke of us. Priscilla denied our engagement. Maria asserted it, very gently, but quite decidedly. Priscilla reminded her of her poverty and infirmities, spoke of the gratitude she owed to those from whom she derived her subsistence, and reapproached her with having purposes of her own to answer, in making matches in the families of her employers. And Maria? Maria trembled excessively, the children say, weak and reduced by pain as she is. One can hardly conceive of temper carrying any woman into such cruelty. Mrs. Levitt rose, in great concern and displeasure, to go, but Maria begged her to sit down again, sent one of the children for me, and appealed to me to declare what share she had had in my engagement with you. I set her right with Mrs. Levitt, who, I am convinced, sees how the matter stands, but it was really a distressing scene, and before the children, too. That was the worst part of it. They stood looking from the furthest corner of the room in utter dismay. It would have moved any one but Priscilla to see the torrent of tears. Maria shed over them when they came timidly to wish her good morning. After Mrs. Levitt was gone, she said she could do nothing more for them. They had been taught to despise her, and her relation to them was at an end. It is, it must be, exclaimed Margaret. Is there no way of stopping a career of vice like this? While Mrs. Plumstead gets a parish boy whipped for picking up her hen's eggs from among the nettles, is Maria to have no redness for slander, which takes away her peace and her bread? She shall have redness, for the children's sake, as well as her own. Her connection with them must go on. I do not exactly see how, but the thing must be done. I dread speaking to poor Rowland about any of these things. I know it makes him so wretched, but the good and the innocent must not be sacrificed. If these poor children must despise somebody, their contempt must be made to fall in the right place, even though it be upon their mother. Let us go and see Maria, said Margaret, turning back. If there is a just and merciful way of proceeding in this case, she will point it out. I wish you had told me all this before. 
here have we been rambling over the grass and among the wild flowers where at the best maria can never go and she lies weeping all alone looking for me i dare say every moment let us make haste philip made all the haste that was compatible with gathering a handful of wild hyacinth and meadow narcissus for poor maria he found himself farther from success than ever when he would have again urged margaret to marry at once a new duty seemed to have sprung up to keep her at deerbrook maria wanted her her summer work lay clear before her she must nurse and cheer maria she must ply her needle for hester and play the housewife spending many of her hours in the business of living a business which is often supposed to transact itself but which in reality requires all the faculties which can be brought to it and all the good moral habits which conscience can originate the most that philip could obtain was permission to come when his duties would fairly allow it and a promise that he should be summoned if margaret found herself placed in any difficulty by mrs rowland maria was not now literally alone nor did she depend on her hostess or on margaret for nursing and companionship it occurred to all the kindest of her friends immediately after mrs enderby's death that phoebe might be her attendant phoebe was not just then the most cheerful of nurses so truly did she mourn her good old mistress but she was glad of occupation glad to be out of mrs rowland's way glad to be useful and she was an inestimable comfort to maria nothing could be done about placing the children again under maria's care when she had recovered mr rowland was naturally unwilling to stir in the business and saw that the best chance for his children was to send them to school at a distance from deerbrook and maria had been too grossly insulted in the presence of her pupils to choose to resume her authority the greys took her up with double zeal as the rowlands let her down they assured her that her little income should not suffer for her being able to devote all her time to fanny and mary the money indeed was nothing to mrs grey in comparison with the pleasure it procured her it put her upon equal terms with mrs rowland at last she did not know how it was but it was very difficult to patronize mr hope he always contrived to baffle her praise but here was an unconnected person thrown upon her care and if mrs rowland had a young surgeon to push mrs grey had an incomparable governess now all to herself End of chapter 33